It's 2005, and J.T. Leroy, author of The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, is at the post-screening Q&A of the movie adaptation of his cult-famous book. He's accompanied on stage by Asia Argento, the director and star of the movie, and his manager, a woman named Emily Fraser. The movie was based on JT's traumatic childhood, during which he'd suffered horrific physical and sexual abuse, including rape, religious indoctrination, and assault in West Virginia. His rough prose about his sordid boyhood captivated icons and luminaries around the world. The film in and of itself was an average Hollywood biopic and was certainly not as interesting as J.T. Leroy himself. Lauded and endorsed by the literary establishment, the American teenage hustler turned literary prodigy is a scrawny, waif-like figure with chunky, dark sunglasses and a bleach blonde wig. On stage, he appeared almost pathologically shy, speaking in a girlish, whispery voice. Any questions posed to him were gently redirected to Argento or Frazier, who would then speak for him. There was an air of mystery to J.T. Leroy. He was trans and donned a blonde wig, sunglasses and a hat everywhere he went because of his chronic shyness which only added a captivating chillness to his mystique. In the beginning, almost no one had ever met the young author in person. No one even knew what he looked like or what his real name was. The JT did stand for Jeremiah Terminator. Most of his close writer friends and associates had never even met him in person either. They'd really only engaged with him over the phone or by email. I'm Sonali Burgis, and you're listening to Grifter. J.T. Leroy developed an almost cult-like status in fiction writing as a young teenager. He wrote stories that drew on the terrifying physical and sexual abuse he'd suffered as a child. Together with his drug-addicted mother, he would work as a prostitute at truck stops throughout the American South. He'd endured sexual abuse and rape at the tender age of five. He'd been addicted to heroin and at the age of 13 wound up living on the streets of San Francisco. He tested positive for HIV and regularly self-harmed. He even associated love with brutality and exploitation. At some point, a social worker found him ambling into traffic in a drug-infused haze and rescued him. The social worker introduced him to a psychologist, Dr. Terence Owens, who encouraged him to put his pain into words, to essentially write about his experiences. Owens passed on JT's writings to a neighbor, Eric Walensky, who happened to be an editor. Through him, JT was able to contact Sharon Olds, a poet he discovered through a man he'd slept with, and Mary Gateskill, an author he so dearly admired. A kind stranger even gifted him a fax machine, which he lugged around, setting up in public restrooms and convenience stores. He connected with established writers, including Dennis Cooper, who took an interest in his work and mentored him, allowing him to hone his craft. At the age of 16, he published stories in The Nerve, 
the New York Press, and Spin. In 1997, at the age of 17, he published his first article in the Grove Press Anthology, Close to the Bone, Memoirs of Hurt, Rage, and Desire. It was a heartbreaking piece of writing. He'd written about dressing up as his mother and seducing one of her boyfriends. At that point, he no longer lived with his mother and had stopped using heroin. Instead, he lived with a social worker who'd rescued him. In 2000, he published his first novel titled Sarah, a collection of linked stories, the hardest deceitful above all things, soon followed. JT's writing was mostly well-reviewed and received attention. His works had been translated into 20 different languages and was attracting Hollywood's attention. His career was slowly but surely beginning to take off. However, he was still an underground sensation, way too shy to appear in public. He only ever conducted interviews by phone or by email, where he spoke about his childhood trauma and sufferings, to which he attributed his shyness. So his fans began to organize their own readings of the book. There were rumors that JT attended those book readings in disguise, sitting somewhere in the audience gatherings, hiding, invisible, exhilarated and baffled by the attention his book was getting. By 2004, his writing featured mainly as contributions in publications such as Black Book, Nerve, and T-Travel, a New York Times Sunday magazine supplement. It was only when he released his second book that he began to show up for in-person interviews, parties, and live readings. He would turn up in what would become his signature look, dark sunglasses, a fedora hat, and a peroxide blonde wig. He was celebrated and admired in the literary world. Celebrities gushed over him. Many of them, including Rosario Dawson and Tatum O'Neill, would read from JT's works at public events while he sat somewhat nervously to the side. Bono mentored him. Filmmaker Gus Van Sant commissioned him to write an early script for the film Elephant. Garbagist Shirley Manson wrote a song about him. Madonna, his email pen pal, reportedly wanted to convert him to Kabbalah. Carrie Fisher opened a home to him, and Winona Ryder gushed about their friendship, claiming to have met JT when he was still a street kid. Websites sold JT merchandise, including, strangely enough, $17 necklace-ready raccoon penis bones. JT toured Europe, attended rock band parties, and fraternized with famous models and designers. He even made the cover of Vanity Fair, and everyone from Elizabeth Taylor to Courtney Love talked regularly with him over the phone. They knew JT intimately, and they spent hours on the phone with him. They were touched by his story and background and empathized with his unfathomable legacy of suffering. In this vortex of glitzy, celebrity-filled fun, he was always accompanied by Emily Fraser, otherwise known as Speedy, and Aster, Emily's boyfriend. With her elfin features and mischievous grin, Emily would manifest at public events beside JT and would speak and make demands for him in a ludicrous British accent. Asia Argento once memorably described the pair as, quote, the Mariah Carey of independent movies. Of their demands, she recalled, she had to, quote, 
hook them up to get a Fendi bag. However, at some point, JT's writing began to falter, and he scarcely put any material out for public consumption, much to his literary agent's chagrin. His agent, Ira Silverberg, was growing increasingly impatient with JT's lacking commitment to writing and urged him to eschew the celebrity lifestyle and return to it. Some believed that Emily and Astor were to blame for JT's complacency. They seemed a little too eager to piggyback on JT's success. Emily, in particular, appeared to exert a strong, powerful influence on JT. She was with him at every public appearance, literary festival, book signing, movie premiere, you name it. JT would often look to her for cues, have her answer questions on his behalf, seek her permission for seemingly trivial actions like taking off his wig in a hot, sweaty club. To many onlookers, including JT's publishers and producers, Emily seemed like an exploitative witch. They found her to be pushy and abrasive, even trashy. However, JT was always fiercely, blindly loyal to Emily. Many of his associates, including Carrie Fisher, actively disliked Emily, believing her to be boastful and manipulative. The reason for this fierce, indomitable loyalty soon became apparent in 2005. It was revealed in a series of magazine and newspaper articles, first in the New York Magazine and then in the New York Times, that J.T. Leroy did not exist. He was the invention of Emily Fraser. Yes, the same Emily that appeared beside him at every public event. Emily's real name is Laura Albert, and Astor, Emily's boyfriend, was actually a dude named Jeff Noob. The person in the chunky sunglasses and blonde wigs was not a boy, but a woman named Savannah Noop, Jeff's half-sister, a 25-year-old waitress slash aspiring clothes designer, who, once JT's popularity exploded, was enlisted to masquerade as the writer in public. It was Laura who'd written all of JT's books, articles, and stories. It was Laura who corresponded as JT by email, who spoke as him on the phone putting on a lilted, breathless Southern accent. Laura was born and raised in Brooklyn Heights. Her parents, both teachers, separated when she was young. She would often tell friends that her childhood had been difficult. She'd been emotionally scarred by her mother, molested by her mother's boyfriends and even one close friend, and bullied in the schoolyard for being overweight. She eventually left her mother's care as a teenager after which she lodged in a group home for troubled kids and studied fiction at Manhattan's New School. At New School, she would sometimes write in the voice of a young Southern boy, a prelude to what would become a large part of her life. She also became involved in the early 80s punk scene in the East Village. She was obsessed with bands like the Sex Pistols, Stiff Little Fingers, and Generation X. She was also exposed to a life of drugs and sex, elements that would eventually be woven together to conjure JT's boyhood story. She'd struggled with her weight and had severe body image issues, which led to gastric band surgery. Her appearance changed dramatically, 
Past photographs reveal Laura as plump and round-faced, but at the time of JT Leroy's fame, she looked like a former rock star with high, chiseled cheekbones and a bohemian appearance. Laura met Jeff Noob in San Francisco in 1989 when they were both 23. Jeff also hailed from a broken family of Midwestern bohemians who'd been on welfare for a while. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Jeff talked of his first experience with Laura. He described her as being eccentric and edgy. She was fearless, sweet, energetic, and beautiful. She'd been writing song lyrics when they'd met, and the two began to collaborate on songs, writing 10 in a single afternoon on their first try. They eventually performed together as an acoustic duo and formed their own band, Daddy Don't Go, a tribute to their common childhood experiences. Throughout, Laura felt uncomfortable in the limelight. She harbored an intense hatred for her own body. She worked best offstage, away from the public eye, and demonstrated a knack for management and administration. She handled the band's bookings, cold-called radio stations and newspapers, reached out to reporters, and so on. Laura's friends confirmed that she was a gifted storyteller with a theatrical flair. She was a fabulous mimic, making people laugh with imitations of acquaintances. As a testament to her ability to mimic, Laura worked a day job for a phone sex clinic. She could pretend to be whoever her clients wanted her to be, including a Japanese girl named Yokiko, a black woman named Keisha, and a dominatrix. In the mid-1990s, Laura began reviewing pornographic websites for a local online magazine. She'd returned to writing after her and Jeff's band, Daddy Don't Go, split. She loved writing fiction. It thrilled and exhilarated her. Her stories were always brutal. She wrote in the voice of that young Southern boy and told stories of the boy being raped by his stepfather after the boy's mother walked out on them. She also told stories about a mother drugging the boy with methamphetamine. At night, Laura would read her stories to Jeff using her normal voice, but sometimes Jeff would catch her using the voice of that little Southern boy. She eventually developed an addiction to calling up child protection hotlines, pretending to be the boy, and would spend long hours ad-libbing stories using various accents and personas to evoke sympathy and attention. That was how JT Leroy first emerged, almost by accident. In the late 1990s, Dr. Terence Owens, the San Francisco psychologist who worked with abused and drug-addicted kids, encouraged Laura, who he believed was JT, to write down his own experiences. Owens had never met JT face to face. They'd only ever communicated on the phone. By channeling JT's persona, Laura felt alive. She felt as though it made her a better writer because she was uncomfortable in her own skin. She only felt alive inside another fictional persona. She also believed her stories would appeal to the literary world if they were told by an abused and fragile teenage boy rather than a 30-year-old woman. In interviews after the scandal broke out, Laura frequently characterized JT as someone who really lived inside her, but 
who needed to go live in someone else. She described herself as an avatar, a vessel who wrote JT's books for him. But what had begun as an act of psychological catharsis and evolved into a convenient fictional avatar for Laura's repressed literary ambitions eventually morphed into something as vivid and real as the fiction she'd penned in JT's name. JT's first ever call, according to Jeff, was made to the writer Dennis Cooper. Laura had been obsessed with Cooper's novel, Try, which featured a teenage male protagonist with two sexually abusive fathers. The teenage boy lived a life that was marred by fierce sex and physical and emotional abuse. In a whispery, boyish voice, she called herself Terminator and told Cooper that she was a huge fan of his. She wanted to interview him for a music magazine, she said. Cooper would later recall that that phone call was forceful, somewhat abrasive, and stated that JT spent the entire call talking about himself. Nevertheless, JT made his headway into the literary world via Cooper, who'd passed on JT's writings to his writer friends and associates. Many writers were more than happy to extend themselves to someone they suspected was an HIV-positive homeless teenager. Slowly, JT was able to grow an extensive network of writer associates who he would stay in regular contact with through faxes and hours-long late-night calls where he could be emotionally draining. He would threaten to commit suicide or cut himself if they didn't respond to his messages or phone him back. They would often have to talk him down from the ledge. JT would also call them three or four times a day, often very late at night. He did use these calls to cultivate relationships with them, especially with writers who worked in the transgressive idiom. He used these calls to network, to get contacts, to gain publicity and exposure. According to an editor who worked on the films for both Sarah and The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, JT had an incredibly filthy mouth. He would sometimes brag about a sex slave who typed up his manuscripts, which Jeff would later reveal in an interview was actually kind of true. Laura had a submissive phone sex client who would write up notes for her on her behalf. JT's confidants would sometimes feel as though he exhibited evidence of multiple personalities. Cooper even talked of a series of phone calls with JT, where JT would pretend to be an innocent little girl, a mean guy and a mean girl, all in one call. The mean guy even had a name. It was Roy, and Roy made an appearance before Asia Argento as well, when she was writing the screenplay. She described Roy as firm, masculine, and judgmental. JT also had this raw, uncanny ability to adapt his personality in ways he thought would appeal to certain listeners. Take JT's first agent, Henry Dunner. JT made it seem as though Dunner was like a father figure to him. Dunner had two children of his own and wrote a memoir about coaching his son's little league team. He was literally a father figure. With Dennis Cooper, 
a writer of stories involving fierce sex and sadistic oppression, JT would appear as though he were a character in one of Cooper's own literary fantasies. He would claim to have an erotic obsession with wanting to be murdered, and one night he even left Cooper a message saying he was in a limo with a person who wanted to kill him. He added that he was tempted to acquiesce to the man's demands because he wanted to be killed. Concerned, Cooper had tried and failed to reach him numerous times, and when he did manage to reach him the next morning, JT acted as if nothing had happened. As with any lie, the bigger it grows, the more complicated it becomes. As Emily, or Speedy, Laura would speak in a fake English accent, both to mask her own voice and to distance it from JT's. She would even go back and forth on the phone between Emily and JT, rubbing her sleeve against the phone to simulate the handoff. Also, that slightly feminine pitch to JT's voice would sometimes be explained away as a result of JT's not having fully matured physically due to the abuse he'd suffered. At some point, Laura decided that JT couldn't hide from the public forever. People were beginning to suspect that JT didn't even exist. In fact, there were rumors swirling about that JT was an invention of Dennis Cooper's or Mary Gateskill's. Laura also felt the need to substantiate JT to some people to get a book deal. She was particularly aware that the autobiographical tales of an abused teenage hustler would appeal far more to editors and publishers than the fiction writings of an older woman with no literary experience. She believed that by pretending to be a chronically abused boy, by masquerading as JT, and by appearing alongside him, she could hide in plain sight. So she went to Dr. Owens, who'd been distributing JT's stories to a class he taught for troubled kids. The kids loved the stories, and Laura was thrilled to have an audience. Laura and Jeff paid a kid named Richard, a lanky blonde teenager they deemed the perfect JT type, to masquerade as JT before Dr. Owens. They did the same for Mary Gateskill, who lived in San Francisco by setting up a casual meeting at a coffee shop. Laura instructed Richard to walk to the table, look nervously at Mary, flip out, and run away. He wouldn't even have to say a word. Laura would then swoop in to comfort JT and explain to Mary that JT was just a tad skittish. His skittishness would be attributed to the abuse he'd suffered as a boy. Richard managed to play the part perfectly, and Laura got to interact with an author she looked up to. Karen Rinaldi offered JT a book deal with an advance of around $24,000, a decent sum for an amateur author. But JT was a minor and couldn't sign the contract himself. He would need someone to co-sign the agreement. So Laura enlisted a friend to play JT's Uncle Bruce, who would sign the contract with JT. Uncle Bruce would speak with Dunau, JT's agent, and Karen Rinaldi over the phone, and managed to remain elusive throughout. How did they manage that? Uncle Bruce was supposedly a super top secret government agent who couldn't reveal too much without compromising his cover, and therefore, he could only communicate with them over the phone. Uncle Bruce co-signed JT's contract 
and payments were made directly to JT's cousin, Joanna Albert, in reality, Laura's sister. Laura even set up a corporation called Underdogs Inc. to manage JT's financial affairs. The president? Laura's mother, Carolyn Albert, who'd long since given financial advice to Laura and Jeff. JT's first book, Sarah, was published in 2000 and drew heavily on details from JT's life. The story involved a young boy's genuinely painful longing for love from his absent mother. The book received a positive review in Spin, which thrilled both Laura and Jeff. It generated a strong buzz, and 30 strangers even turned up to JT's first reading in San Francisco. Laura was beginning to worry that people wouldn't care about the novel, and she didn't want the novels to fade away. She wanted so desperately for the writing to do well. In that spirit, she was constantly promoting them, trying to get interviews with famous writers and reporters. Packages of books were sent to celebrities, calls were made to reporters and magazine editors, and so on. Actors and musicians responded to JT for the same reasons novelists and poets did. The readings became press-worthy events, even attracting corporate sponsors like Motorola and Index Magazine. We can never know for sure who's on the other end of a screen name or a phone line. And given that these were JT's two chosen media, the possibility of his identities seemed endless. As a result, there arose a need for an actual physical JT Leroy. Laura needed someone to play JT, to appear at public events and readings of his books. Jeff eventually asked Savannah, his half-sister, who was then 21, to play JT. She was attractive in a boyish sort of way and incredibly charming. According to Jeff, Savannah could charm the pants off of anybody. In the fall of 2001, JT received an interview request by a German television channel. Jeff and Laura decided to present Savannah as JT for the interview. They bought a cheap wig in a store on Mission Street in San Francisco and then did some test shots with Savannah in a photo booth. Laura primed Savannah with details about JT's life and story. The impersonation with the German crew was such a success that Laura decided to keep it going. Savannah was told to be shy and awkward in public. She was told to be quiet and to let Laura do the talking. However, on the rare occasions Savannah did speak, people were surprised that her voice was different from the voice they'd heard over the phone. Overall, however, Savannah galvanized audiences. She was a hit. Laura had created the perfect icon. JT came off as a broken, abused boy with a horrific backstory. His appearance at public events only solidified the story. He once broke down crying at a reading in New York, and at a press conference in Milan, he hid under a table when grilled by the aggressive Italian reporters. With his waif-like androgynous appearance and blonde wig, he was also appealing to widespread audiences. To help explain away Savannah's evident femininity, JT began telling people that he was undergoing a sex change, 
which only added to his aura of being both not of this world and one of its more palpable victims. JT's story appealed to non-celebrities and ordinary people who'd themselves been abused or were HIV positive or identified as transgender. They began flocking to JT's events. Laura understood the power of JT's story and the effect that it could have on people. People that had suffered abuse during their childhood looked to JT as some sort of enigma because he was telling their stories on some level and they identified with him. Laura and Jeff and Savannah had their lives upturned by JT's popularity. Soon, they were being flown across the country and the world by publishers and movie producers. They were staying at fancy hotels in Cannes, dining at upscale restaurants in New York, wearing expensive designer clothes. They were basically living the high life. And according to Roberta Hanley, producer of The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, they were, quote, great grifters. Savannah had come into her own during her impersonation of JT. As she grew into her role and began talking more in public, her voice began to synchronize with Laura's. Using her charm and wit, she engaged in a series of flings and makeout sessions with movie stars and even Asia Argento. In terms of charm and appeal, she was miles away from Laura, who was actively disliked by JT's associates and celebrity friends, including Carrie Fisher, who referred to her as an idiot. Laura was seen as a cold-blooded parasite, someone who was milking JT's successes and exploiting his fame. Laura and the rest of the JT factory kept the charade going for about six years. In that time, Laura had worked herself from the bottom to the top of the publishing food chain. But, like to most things, the end swiftly arrived with an expertly researched New York Magazine article by the writer Stephen Beachy. He questioned how JT, back in his hustler days, managed to find public bathrooms with phone jacks for his fax machine. Also, he asked, who ever heard of a teenage hustler who's suddenly pathologically shy? Just like that, there were so many gaping holes and gaps in JT's stories. In January 2005, a New York Times reporter who'd been chasing this story for more than a year outed Savannah as JT's public face in the Times. The backlash was instant. JT's story was dubbed one of the greatest literary hoaxes of all time. The LGBT community accused Laura of exploiting issues like AIDS for literary fame and gain. Laura was accused of brazenly and cravenly using JT's made-up HIV diagnosis as a marketing ploy. Also, she and Jeff eventually broke up. Laura was also sued by Antidote International Films for signing a feature film option contract as JT Leroy and was found liable for fraud. She was ordered to pay the production company $116,500 in damages and $350,000 in attorney's fees. Speedy, Astor and JT Leroy went up in smoke. The former pair, all but forgotten, the latter inscribed into history not for the beautiful novels written under his name, but as a hoax.
2014, a documentary called The Cult of J.T. Leroy showed how many of J.T.'s writer friends and associates felt betrayed. They'd felt they'd been emotionally manipulated and were forced to feel sorry for someone who pretended that he was suicidal. They'd offered J.T. emotional support, favors, and gifts, and all of it had been for nothing. Argento told The Guardian that it was, quote, the most shocking thing that happened in my life. Ira Silverberg, JT's agent, was appalled and said, quote, to present yourself as a person who's dying of AIDS in a culture which has lost so many writers and voices of great meaning, to take advantage of the sympathy and empathy is the most unfortunate part of all of this. In 2016, a documentary titled Author, the JT Leroy Story, attempted to answer the question of why Laura, a talented writer with a powerful and unique voice and grisly backstory of her own, felt the need to hide behind a younger male avatar. The documentary showed that to this day, Laura still does not see what she did as a lie or a hoax or even a masquerade. In fact, she's continually and vehemently maintained that she and JT were never a hoax She's made various justifications for her actions and in interviews over the years as well. Thank you for listening to Grifter. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Links to the sources I used to research this episode are included in the description. See you at our next episode.